0: This is TechSnap, episode 429, recorded on May 10th, 2020. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems Network and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Let's start things off today by talking about web servers. Now, of course, with the web dominating basically everything we do online these days, choosing the right web server on the back end, well, it's pretty important. Last time we talked about this in episode 404, pre-Fork Pitfalls, we mostly just stuck to the traditional Nginx and Apache. But recently, you've been giving a relative newcomer a go, and that's Caddy. I had actually never heard of Caddy
1: before, but Lee Hutchinson over at ours was like, hey, did you know Caddy went 2.0.0 today? And I was like, no, what's a Caddy? Turns out it's a statically built web server
0: built entirely in Go, and uh, it performs really well. You know, Caddy's been one I've been watching. I think I first noticed it because it was one of the first web servers out there to directly integrate Let's Encrypt support and make it super simple to get HTTPS up and going. Now, of course, since then, a ton of other solutions for that specific functionality exist— and I've been a little wary of Caddy due to some of their history around an somewhat open core model and some questionable HTTP headers. So I was really pleased to see that in version 2.0, everything's looking great. It is Apache licensed, open source, and easy to get started with.
1: I haven't been following the project for as long as you have, Wes, but um, you know, digging back into it, I did see some of the history that you were talking about and my impression, it looks to me like the project is really trying to grow up, like it's a conscious effort to grow up and mature and be better than it used to be, which I certainly appreciate.
0: Now, one thing many people appreciate about Go built applications is oftentimes they compile down to simple static binaries that you can just download and run. And that's certainly easy in, in one sense. But it kind of rubbed you the wrong way, Jim. Well,
1: you know, I, I don't really have any big complaints with Caddy 2.0.0, the way it's delivered and packaged now. You can definitely get off on the wrong foot just trying to Google, you know, Caddy install or whatever, because you find the instructions for the old 1.x server. And they literally direct you to just pipe curl to pseudo bash from a, you know, get and uh, yeah, I, I don't appreciate that at all. That's not the proper way to handle packaging. Uh, you should never, ever, ever just route the literal Internet directly into the brain of your computer with root privileges. But that's not the way they're doing things now. Like I said, if you Google, you'll mostly find the old 1.x docs. But if you go to Caddy's GitHub page, you'll find instead information on how to get dev packages for Debian-derived distributions. Uh, I didn't look at them, but other instructions for packaging for, you know, like Red Hat or CentOS or what have you. And yeah, everything is a lot more, well, professional and mature. Uh, It was a little bit more difficult to find the information, but they also have an actual third-party repository that you can add if you're on a Debian-derived distro like Ubuntu. So you can just add their repo server and have, you know, apt-update and apt-upgrade
0: will take care of you. I'm pleased to note now that it looks like they've updated some of the docs on their main page. So if you go look under Debian, Ubuntu, or Raspbian, interesting that they specify the Raspberry Pi out right there, they have their repository linked directly on that
1: page. Yeah, and I think the the reason for the change really is, you know, they started out being, and I'm sure they still have this focus to a large degree. It's a very container focused, you know, kind of a web server. And I think that the initial position was just that they kind of didn't care about doing things the traditional old fuddy-duddy way and having proper package management and installation because the idea was that, well, developers are basically just going to run this thing on the command line inside a Docker container. So who cares?
0: Right. And while that might be true for folks just trying it out on your laptop, if you're going to run this in production, you're going to want updates and some sort of life cycle. Exactly, Wes. You
1: know, personally, not everybody feels quite as strongly about this as I do. But as far as I'm concerned... If I can't apt update and apt upgrade and, you know, be certain that I'm getting security upgrades automatically, then I'm just not interested in it. Yeah, the
0: package management system, well, it's long and battle tested, and it's nice to have it all in one place. Otherwise, you're going to have to tend to these special apps outside of it, and that's just more admin overhead for you. Now, one thing that stands out to me about Caddy is just how simple it is to get started with. A bare-bones Hello World Caddy file, well... It's about two lines of config. I'm curious about your thoughts on getting started with Caddy as someone who has quite a bit of experience configuring more for both things like Nginx and Apache. I didn't find it as much easier as
1: the rather breathless docs make it out to be. While it's true that it's a lot more terse, that doesn't necessarily mean either simpler or more discoverable. You have to know what you're doing, and you've got to go digging through the docs to figure out exactly what you want to do. There aren't really any good, uh, readily applicable vanilla examples to use. Um, I started out trying to use the one caddy file that I found on the, the how-to page that included PHP support, and didn't quite realize that it also included an unnecessary directive that would break basically every website in the world except a craft CMS. Now, I had never heard of Craft CMS before then. I had to look it up. And when I did, I discovered it has a
0: 0.1% market share among CMSs. Yeah, I was about to ask, Craft what now? That's kind of an odd example. And I take your point that, you know, one of the great things about using something like Apache and Nginx is that, well, everyone else is also using them. And as much as Nginx at times has maybe too many configuration options, at least for the newbie, there's probably a lot of well-worn templates that you can adapt.
1: Well, they also, you know, when you install Apache or NGINX from your package manager, for one thing, they're already going to be in your actual distributions repository. You don't need to go adding a third-party repo for it. And I'm not going to hold that, you know, too far over Caddy's head. I mean, it it takes a while to get the attention of the distros. I get that. But when you do install their package, you don't get a working example vanilla Caddy file to go with it. When you install Apache or you install Nginx from, you know, a Debian distro or a Red Hat distro or wherever, it's actually already ready to go to deliver a simple website. And you've got commented configurations and all the places they should go and you can read the comments. and They'll tell you right there in the files, you know, kind of what you need to do to get where you want to go. With Caddy, you're just left with promises that, you know, oh, this is simple and easy and the configs are much shorter. And then you're digging through developer style documentation.
0: Yes, it does seem like Caddy's configuration and documentation is aimed at a more quote-unquote modern, maybe developer-oriented audience. There are some advantages to that relative simplicity. They get some things right, like OCSP stapling and other security requirements that if you're new to the complicated world of TLS and encryption, you might have trouble figuring out. But I get the sense that there might be some downsides, especially if you have a lot of those knobs that you know And you do want to
1: tune. Well, honestly, Wes, it's not even necessarily so much about already knowing about the knobs and wanting to tune them. What I find that style of configuration very much lacking is organization. I mean, you're just left with this idea that, oh, hey, you're supposed to write this caddy file from scratch. And sure, it'll be short, but, you know, it's still relatively arcane. You need to know what you're doing with it. And it's just one monolithic file. And clearly that's seen as an advantage there. But as a long-term sysadmin, I don't prefer that, actually. I love the way Debian-derived distros have handled Apache installations for years and years and years. Ever since Apache added the include directive so that you could include one configuration file or even a whole directory full of them in another, the Debian developers, they broke everything out into this wonderful nest of directories for sites available versus sites enabled, mods available, mods enabled, conf enabled, conf available. And the way these things all work is you can write your little config files or you know copy and paste them or whatever. If you've got like a little global configuration snip that you wanna do, you can write one single file for that, drop it in conf available, then A2 in confit, which all that is, is just a you know convenient little helper script that creates a symlink from that file that you created in conf available to conf enabled. Now, once it's in conf enabled, when you reload Apache, now your little one snippet will apply to everything. And it's almost like and, you know, I hate to bring up the Windows comparison here, particularly in a positive route. But, you know, it's it's almost like an active directory when you make a proper group policy rather than just editing the default domain policy directly. Like if you want to map drives, you create a mapped drives policy. And the only thing in that policy is the map drives. So when you go to look that you can see what's there, you can manipulate what's there and, you know, you're not going to screw up anything else or have to page through, you know, all this stuff with anything else. It's very focused and direct. Apache has that with modules with global config snippets and with vhost config files. If you wanna add a new site, you can copy a template into sites available, then symlink it into sites enabled, and it's done, you're good. You can look at that one config in one place. Now, Caddy's individual site configs may be short, but still, if you've got a server with you know 50 or 60 sites, you're gonna have 50 or 60 different site stanzas in one fat file. Now, I don't think that particularly bothered Caddy's developers because I don't think that's really the world they're looking to live in. Like they're clearly OK with the idea of multiple sites on one server. It is provided for. You can have separate vHost host stances, but I don't think they're really envisioning it being used for like a traditional big heavy web server that handles lots of different things. So much as a little tiny thing in a container that's all
0: focused on really like the one big site. You know what I mean? Yes, very much so. There's some interesting ideas around that, and they all, I think, underscore your point. They're not really aimed at maybe a traditional s- admin. A lot of them are focused around automation and large, perhaps cloud-scale deployments. where well, you don't have this all concentrated on one box, but you have Caddy, you know, being a proxy in front of your one web app. One interesting concept is, you know, we have these caddy files, and that's the sort of native description language that you can use to interface with caddy. But under the hood, there's actually this concept of adapters. And caddy's translating the caddy file into JSON. And that JSON configuration, well, it's also available through their API. And throughout their documentation, you'll find references to that, because when you run into limitations, their answer is usually, Well, we plan this around the API, and we expect most of our consumers will use that to further automate and basically make up for any of those deficiencies that way.
1: You know, I know this is the old man yelling at people to get off of his lawn, but when you're asking me to dig through JSON just to get a web server running, yuck.
0: Yeah, it can certainly be messy, although I can also see perhaps some nice workflows integrated with continuous integration tooling that generate those JSONs for you and ship them off to Caddy. And one feature I love seeing in web servers these days is zero downtime config reloads. Now, that's not really important in by far the majority of use cases, but it's a really nice feature when you need it.
1: Oh, you mean that thing that Apache and Nginx have had for like 10 years each? Yeah, that one. You know, Wes, the other thing that we should probably mention about Caddy, uh, something that you should be thinking about when you see the newest, hottest thing in web servers, and it's this one little static file with absolutely no dependencies that does everything from HTTP to HTTPS, you know, to OCSP stapling to you name it, is, okay, so can its team actually respond to security problems on a timely basis? Now, the answer for Caddy is going to be probably so because it's actually taking on a lot less than it looks like on the surface. Because the reality is that the majority of all this work is being done by the Go language itself. There are still plenty of things for Caddy to do, like getting the OCSP stapling right. But for the most part, you can write a web server in Go in you know, a few tens of lines of code. It's pretty much built into the language itself. So when you have an issue with like TLS security or what have you, The answer is usually going to be that's a problem that had to get fixed in the Go language itself. And the fix for Caddy is just going to be to recompile the program again.
0: Yeah, especially in the world of crypto. It's lovely to see the wheel not being reinvented.
1: Yeah, it's nice. They've got Let's Encrypt, you know, built right into the server. But I got to be honest, I don't really care that much about that. CertBot is available. It's super easy. And, you know, having that built into Caddy literally just saves me one time saying, apt install python3
0: certbot apache and certbot it's not so hard yeah i think that was a major selling point when caddy was first on the market but since then really the let's encrypt tooling has become so much better and pretty much rock solid yeah wes and the
1: the one other issue i'll mention is uh, i'm told it's possible to get caddy to serve just plain http but it really doesn't want to by default if you have a caddy file that looks anything like the samples that you'll find it's going to try to redirect every HTTP request to HTTPS. And if you're working in a dev environment where you don't actually have a public IP facing you and you can't grab a let's encrypt certificate, that can make life pretty difficult. If you make the name of your website, so to speak, localhost in the caddy file, it does know that it shouldn't try to go get a let's encrypt cert for Localhost, and instead it tries to create a snake oil cert and add that to the root trust. With that said, I'm not sure if it succeeds in adding it to the root trust and Firefox just still refuses to trust it or if something broke in the process where it was trying to add it to the root trust. But one way or another, the snake oil certificate it manages to create, Firefox does not want to let you view and you got to click through all the security warnings. So it ends up being kind of a pain just to work with a site as you're getting it set up, especially
0: in a test environment rather than production. Yeah, I think that's another sign that it's built for a world where you've got things exposed already and you want HTTPS by default, but you're right, in development setups, that's not always the most convenient. And all the time you saved, maybe, with the short config, well, now you're spent troubleshooting why your command line tools are rejecting the request.
1: Well, you know what they say, Wes. Everybody has a test environment. Some of us are lucky enough to have it separate from production. Very
0: well put. On a more personal note, and speaking of Go-powered HTTP servers, I've been using Traffic a lot for my own personal infrastructure, primarily because of its deep integration with Docker and the labels over there, where you can add a new container, add a label to it, and it's automatically picked up by Traffic. But seeing all the nice new improvements in Caddy, gotta say, Jim, I'm tempted to give it a try.
1: Caddy does look like a great solution for a lot of people, Wes, but as for me... You can pry my Apache from my cold, dead hands.
0: That's one challenge I won't even try. For our next story today, let's jump a few layers down the stack and turn our eyes over to the CPU world. Now, lately, we've been talking a lot about AMD, and with good reason. But it's only fair to give some time to Intel and their latest 10th generation desktop CPUs even if, well, this time they might not want us to.
1: Yeah, with a heavy heart, Wes, I got to say it. This is basically, it's the 10th Lake laptop CPUs all over again, or at least half of the 10th generation laptop CPUs. And we're talking about Comet Lake because that's what these 10th generation desktops are based on. We're still looking at 14 nanometer Plus, 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 plus. I mean, everybody's kind of lost track of how many pluses, you know, we put on that 14 nanometer process at this point. And just like with the Comet Lake laptop parts, Intel is focusing on an extremely high base clock rate for single process at the expense of pretty much everything else. I don't think they had a whole lot of choice. I think they're focusing on the one thing that they still can do really well because they've learned the ins and outs of that 14 nanometer process like you wouldn't believe. But yeah, we're looking at over five gigahertz, you know, factory clock rates on both the i7 and i9 parts. We're looking at a gigantic laundry list of SKUs without looking, I want to say it was 31 different parts in this 10th generation. Oh boy. And we're looking at almost nothing in the way of usable performance numbers coming out of their marketing
0: department. Well, that is sadly right on trend. It's weirdly a throwback. I mean, I feel like we're back in the old gigahertz wars days of a decade ago, when clearly it's not really that relevant. I feel like
1: the, the gigahertz wars back then were at least a little closer to relevant than they are now.
0: Back then, we had more workloads that made sense for these high gigahertz claims, but these days, not so much.
1: Yeah, about the only market that really cares at all anymore is the gamer market. Because when we talk about these really high clock rates, you know, we're not talking about all cores. We're talking about single core turbo to the max super extreme Taco Bell Mountain Dew, you know, whatever Intel's calling it these days. It feels like every year they've got a new name for whatever they're calling the next technology to eke another 50 or 100 megahertz out of that one fastest core but even in the gaming world i'm i'm not convinced that's really that relevant beyond marketing i think it's overplayed a lot and outside the gaming world i mean every significant workload is not only multi-core these days it's
0: massively multi-core now speaking of things that make me think of a decade ago i also see some info here about celeron and pentium chips how does that fit in everyone's more familiar i3, i5, and i7 lines.
1: So the Celeron and Pentium, and this is actually not anything new, um, Celeron and Pentium have been around forever. They're just extremely low in the budget price range. And uh, basically, they're both dual core parts. The uh, Pentium G or Pentium Gold, depending on how verbose you want to be, that's dual core with hyper-threading, and Celeron is dual core, no hyper-threading. These are very, very simplistic parts compared to the the actual core line. Uh, They operate at base clock only. There's no turbo. uh, There's none of the associated turbo technologies, no max anything. Um, All the Celerons and Pentium Golds have integrated graphics and a fixed clock speed uh, from 3.4 gigahertz on the lowest end part to 4.2 gigahertz on the highest end Pentium. Thermal velocity boost is only on the i9. And Turbo Boost Max is only on the i7 and the i9, and those are both in addition
0: to the regular Turbo on i3 and i5. Wow. Yep. Thank you. That's a good breakdown, and honestly, I've gotten some pretty good leverage out of a Celeron chip myself for a low-end box that doesn't have much to do besides store some backups. He mentioned associated turbo technologies there, and I've been struggling to read through the marketing speak. What are these? Because are there like three different ones here?
1: Yeah, there really are. Um, If you buy an i3 or i5 CPU, you have a base clock speed and you've got a turbo clock speed, and that's about as far as that goes. But once you get the i7 line, uh, now if you've got an i7, you've got the base turbo and you've also got turbo boost max, and then when you go from the i7 to the i9, you've got the base turbo, you've got turbo boost max, and you've got thermal velocity boost. Uh, thermal velocity boost is basically just a way to get an additional 100 megahertz boost clock out of the fastest core on a single core only workload. And only basically while the core is running cool, you will very quickly not be able to take advantage of honestly half of these things if your chip starts running hot. I think a lot of people are going to discover in real-world systems that they can't sustainably see the kinds of high clock speeds that Intel is, you know, specifying on these things because really they're only short-term and they're dependent on having a ton of
0: cooling. Right. So not only do you have to get the thermals right here, but these are all designed around short, bursty workloads. And if you've got a whole bunch of stuff you're crunching through, well... Shortly thereafter, these things are going to kick off.
1: Yeah, and the good news is these really are very advanced mechanisms for getting the absolute most out of every individual CPU. The bad news is not every individual CPU is the same, and you're going to have faster CPUs and slower CPUs right out of the factory You know, sold as the same thing at the same price. What one person gets out of one individual i9 part, another person won't be able to out of theirs— even with the same thermal setup. That makes for some rather confusing benchmarks. The other thing that we ought to talk about here is the amount of cooling that you will need. And the answer is we really don't know. Uh, Intel plays it very fast and loose when they spec these CPUs for thermal design power. Uh, The thermal design power that they rate them at, 65 watts for the i7 or i9 base models, or 125 watts for the K and KF models, That's only sufficient to keep the chip running at the all-core base speed. If you want to get into the turbo, let alone turbo boost max or thermal velocity boost, you're going to need more cooling than that. A lot more cooling. We don't really know exactly how much, but we do know that some motherboard manufacturers are planning to spec their motherboards to supply up to 500 watts to these CPUs.
0: Wow, that is some serious power. It really feels like Intel has designed Threadripper without all the cores. Well, on that note, what hope do we have here for Intel, right? I mean, if this is 14 nanometers plus, 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 what's happening with 10 nanometer, let alone smaller processes than that? It's difficult to
1: say what their roadmap looks like from here. Uh, Personally, if I was buying an Intel laptop, uh, I would go Ice Lake all the way. A lot of enthusiasts will crap all over the Ice Lake 10 nanometer line because it doesn't clock as high as Comet Lake. And on a very specific single core workload, you may see slightly better performance out of Comet Lake. But honestly, the Ice Lake 10 nanometer, it runs tremendously lower power. It's got a lot more room on die for much higher performer integrated graphics. I would certainly go Ice Lake all the way if Intel were my only pick. The problem is that Intel's not my only pick. Right now, AMD is just absolutely killing them all the way around. If you want the fastest laptop processor, it's going to be an AMD. If you want the fastest desktop processor, high-end desktop processor, server processor, AMD is leading on all fronts. There has been some speculation that Intel may never really get the 10 nanometer process worked out well enough to truly compete in the way that it wants to. And they may just be buying time on the way to their own seven or maybe five nanometer process. I really don't know.
0: Well, that brings us to our final story today. And that's a little story about some fury over 5G. Now, of course, we've covered some of the conspiracy theories and other reasons people are upset about 5G, whether that's us upset about the poor journalistic coverage of just what 5G means, or some of the worse, no less sciency arguments out there. But this complaint comes from the U.S. military, who you'd think might have some better-founded complaints. Yeah, Wes,
1: honestly, it's hard to figure out who's got the right and the wrong in this one. Uh, the military is complaining that Legato's use of Spectrum that they bought on a fire sale running from 1564 megahertz to 1680 megahertz. their complaint is they believe that if Legato uses this thing the way they want to, that it's going to interfere with GPS. Now, there's a few issues with this. Uh, one is that in theory, the military is saying that their operational readiness will be compromised because their GPS results will no longer be valid. But, you know, as a former service member myself, if your stuff is that easily spoofed or hacked or jammed that, you know, literally any kind of interference renders it unusable, you can't depend on it in the first
0: place. I mean, you're going into adverse environments, right? Right. I mean, if you can't make it work even in a good environment on your own soil, well, you certainly can't tell your enemies to stop broadcasting on that band. Exactly. And to be fair, you know, GPS
1: is a woefully outdated protocol. It reminds me a lot of the original SMTP, you know, back in the days when the Internet was new and everybody was a good guy. So why wouldn't you want any conceivable server emitting you know, a message from any conceivable recipient? They're just helping along by relaying that, right? Sounds
0: totally fine to me, Jim.
1: That's kind of how GPS is right now. Uh, Civilian devices in particular, there is just absolutely no protection against spoofing. And you can go buy a $15 USB VGA adapter, hack it and change it into a software-defined radio. And you can just go Pied Piper, the nearest Tesla, off the wrong exit on the interstate. Now, it would be illegal for you to do that. But from a technical standpoint, it's not hard at all. There are certainly ways that this can be improved, but up until now, nobody's been interested in bothering to do that. We passed a law. It's illegal. The heck with it. Let's move on. So, you know, my initial reaction to all this is to tell the military to stop whining and to say that, you know, even for the civilian applications that the military is, you know, warning that they're going to get messed up with this as well. I want to say, look, we just need to overhaul all that crap to begin with. I also want to point out the order includes a 23 megahertz guard band, as well as transmission power restrictions that are radically lower than what the initial proposal was. But on the other hand, I would want to just leave it there if this is a question of all of the public being able to use the spectrum for something good. Like, you know, the allocation for Wi-Fi 6E. I, I have no bones about that. Using six gigahertz for Wi-Fi 6E was great. And I don't really care that some of the cable TV networks are complaining that they think it might maybe interfere with some of their, you know, remote transmissions from reporters. They can deal with it.
0: Right. I mean, this is our spectrum, right? The FCC is here to allocate our spectrum to the benefit of the public.
1: Exactly. Unfortunately, that's not the case here. We're talking about a very narrow little band of spectrum that Legato bought on an absolute fire sale because who would want it because you couldn't do anything with it. And now they're trying to get the FCC to issue a ruling that will make it tremendously valuable after they paid next to nothing for the thing that nobody wanted to begin with. So, ah. The whole thing's a little sketchy either way, in my opinion. Yeah, who is Legato and what are they trying to do with the Spectrum? Well, Wes, I'm not really strong on who Legato is either, but uh, they're the folks who operate a satellite named SkyTerra 1, and their plans for that little bit of Spectrum is to use the 5G protocol to enable mobile connectivity to small and low-power devices via satellite.
0: Yeah, to make matters more interesting, they were previously known as light-squared, and way back in 2012 had tried to get this same spectrum changed over. It didn't work then, seems to be working now. Unfortunately, I guess we're left to wait and see just what happens to GPS. Well, Wes,
1: if you try and fail, declare bankruptcy and try again. Unfortunately, that seems to
0: work very well. That brings us to the end of this episode of TechSnap, and it's with a very heavy heart that I have to share this will be the penultimate episode for Jim and myself.
1: Yeah, Wes, it has absolutely been a great run, and I have very much enjoyed doing this show and interacting with you and our listeners, but uh, the next one will
0: be the last one, and the show will be going on indefinite hiatus. We'll have more to share about what's next for the both of us in the next episode until then, thank you so much for joining us. And see you in a couple weeks, everybody.